Hey, y'all. Okay, I'm super excited for today's conversation with Jamia Wilson, where we talk about everything feminism and intersectionality. But first, I don't know if you know this, but every week since the election, we've put out a toolkit called Well Read for how to get informed, how to take action, and how to stay grounded along the way. In it, we've turned to the powerful voices of frontline leaders, spiritual activists, and cultural creatives to help us make sense of what's happening in our country and guide us towards solidarity in action. Well Read is a weekly roundup email with everything you need to stay plugged in and activated. Sign up at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast. <laughs> My name is Carrie Kelly, and welcome to Citizen Podcast, where we are exploring the practice of citizenship and the politics of well being. I can't not speak my truth, otherwise, I feel like I'm dying. And that's it's just something I finally figured out how to make a part of my work, even in terms of how we are conditioned to answer the question, How are you? Right. In this culture, oh, I'm specifically. Fine. Exactly. No one tells you when you're learning these things or when you're even learning another language, they're never telling you how to say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm drained, I'm feeling like crap today. I don't know. Exactly. I don't know how the fuck I feel right now. Exactly. I need help. We're not supposed to talk about the unpleasantness. We're supposed to just power through and suppress and repress. And so I I think about that a lot in terms of how I want to embody truth and also those times when I forgive myself for not leaning 100% into it when I say I'm fine and I'm not fine. Right, right. Um, Because we are conditioned to do that. What I really appreciate about Jamia Wilson is that she's never afraid to go there, to talk about the tough stuff, the issues that make people uncomfortable, to confront with love. But as we discuss in this podcast, speaking truth to power isn't just something we fling around. It's a skill set that we cultivate and channel. To build the muscle of authentic and courageous communication requires self-awareness, a commitment to relationship, and a curiosity and consciousness about how we got here. And it's the perfect superpower for Jamia, who is an activist, author, and the executive director of the Feminist Press. Jimmy is not just known for her provocative words, but is becoming the go-to for provocative conversations with some of the biggest feminist icons of our time, including Solange, Erica Badu, and the legend herself, Congressman Maxine Waters. Jamia recalled some of what she's learned from this lineage of feminists, saying it's not just about reclaiming our time, but about reclaiming our power. In this interview, she challenges us to contemplate how we can live our lives in the way where we can be more fearless about leaning into our purpose, trusting our instincts, and understanding our power and how we can channel it. Powerful advice from a powerful woman. Hello, Jimmy Wilson. Hi. It's so amazing to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I've been really looking forward to it. I know we've been talking about this for a long time. Yes. But I feel like every time I talk to you, it's like we're on a podcast. Like it's that <laughs> juicy. Um, so I feel like we've been practiced many times before. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first thing I want to ask about this is really important is I understand that you really like trashy TV. I do. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I love reality TV. I love sister wives. I love 
Seeking Sister Wives. <laughs> I love 90 Day Fiance, which is the worst, best thing ever to happen in the world. I don't it says even, so much about humanity. I've never even heard of these shows. You really want to protect your brain. Netflix. Because <laughs> you're like, I don't, I don't want to do yes. this to you. Oh, I actually pay to download them from <laughs> iTunes. It's really, it's a habit. I could be selling that or I could be uh, saving that money and putting it in my 401k or something like that. That's not so, as much fun. Like, what could I be doing with the money that I throw away to distract myself from reality. And I get really invested in these people's relationships like Married at First Sight. That show is wild. Does Who it make gets you feel at first sight? Does it make you feel better about yourself like Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, all my wildly past inappropriate relationship right. choices. I mean, just saying that in case my husband hears this podcast, <laughs> past is the operative word, Travis. Hey, what's up? But I, you know, just I'm like there are people in this world who it is not their cultural inclination to marry people at first sight but signed up for a reality TV show to get married at first sight. Tinder has gotten people to that point. And so that fascinates me. And then I live vicariously through them and thinking like, I am that crazy. You know, like, I'm just so glad well, I I'm missed the boat. Yes, I'm and alone. I'm not alone. Because <laughs> I totally would do something like that if I already hadn't found my person. I would be that person who would say, what? Oh, I believe in fairy tales. Let's try it. And these are really courageous people who not only are – doing things like what we did, but are courageous enough to do them in front of everyone. It's so true. And at 24 seven, I think when I see this one woman who's on it now and she's this black woman and I see myself in her in so many ways and just the way she walks around in her sweatpants and with her head wrap on and everything, I just is a, a celebration. Yeah, that's me. right. Like, in front of the world. I aspire. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So I was on your website today and your website starts off with Jamia is many things. <laughs> which I love and totally relate to. Um, but you are an activist, a feminist, a storyteller, a media maker. And it also says that you're a thought leader. And and I've, like, I've used that term a million times and I've called people thought leaders. But then I was like, what does it mean to be a thought leader? So what does that mean to you to be a thought leader in this day and age? Thank you so much. That so that bio came from my speakers bureau, Fresh Speakers, and when they wrote it about me, I felt so honored, but also so seen and heard because I think what they were really saying is that I dare to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. and I'm someone who will see things or intuit things and dare to say them before they might be popular or dare to say them before there's a consensus that that's the direction we should go. And when I think of the archetypes that... I have really connected to in my life and in my spirituality, et cetera, they have been people who weren't always liked. Um, Joan of Arc, for example, or um, Cassandra or other kinds yep. of um, archetypes, m mainly women ones, it's interesting too that I'm now making that connection, who've always just had a vision of a different possibility than where we are now and talked a lot about it and people had various reactions to them talking about it. Yeah. And I have a therapist who... I've recently started seeing after not going to therapy for years. And she said to me uh, early on, you're a truth teller. And that means that people are going to either love you or hate you. Did you know that? And it just really made me laugh because Yikes. I feel that that's been an experience I've had since I was a very young child. And I think that I learned as I was starting to drive my career toward activism and media work 
to really focus on my strengths, but also to recognize, oh, this is just so integral to who I am. I can't not speak my truth. Otherwise I feel like I'm dying. And that's, it's just something I finally figured out how to make a part of my work. I love that. And the other thing I really appreciate about you, and I feel like you and I get into this a lot when we meet, is that you have this way of holding the complexity of issues. Like you can read between the lines. You see the spaces in between and around issues that are non-binary, that are filled with gray matter and uncertainty and messiness. And you speak about that really well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because I feel sometimes that people don't like to live in the gray and I think that makes sense because we live, like you said, in a culture where there's a lot of polarity right. and binary and people don't like the nuance. And I even thought about it today. Someone was saying something to me and I was talking about an experience I'd had with someone and a point that had been brought up. And she said, oh, but just focus on the one part that says this. And I th- had a little breath that I took back in because I thought, oh, but that's not the whole truth of what was said. And so although I recognize in the way that that person communicates that she felt, oh, you just need to say this one thing because that's going to get us the result. But to me, I thought, ah, oh, but if if we leave out the accent, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, that's there, the meaning of what occurred and the meaning of what is going to come out of this truth is different. And so that's a thing that I always go back and forth around how I navigate and negotiate this, that sometimes I think the gray is inconvenient. Yeah. And that's why people like us, struggle in certain spaces because especially math for me was really hard when I was studying less complex maths, for example, because there was a right or wrong answer. And I've always kind of wanted to know more. What's the beyond? What's the sideways? What's the outside the line? Um, That's what I'm most interested in. The in-between. Yes. Um, Well, we're often debating in this country about freedom of speech. And and like you, there are so many people right now finding their voice and speaking truth to power, right? So, So that's becoming popular and mainstream. And I think my question is around, you know, do you think there's a practice to speaking truth? Or do you think it's just okay for everyone to be speaking truth? Like, is there a skill or a muscle that you had to develop around how to speak truth in the most productive way? Such a good question. I think we are taught to lie Mm -hmm. about our lives and we're taught to lie about how we feel, even in terms of how we are conditioned to answer the question, how are you? Right. In this culture specifically. Exactly. No one tells you when you're learning these things or when you're even learning another language, no one tells you when you're first in your French class and they teach you ça va bien. They're never telling you how to say, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm drained. I'm feeling like crap today. I don't know. Exactly. I don't know how the fuck I feel right now. Exactly. I need help. You know, those, those things aren't what we're taught that, that those things we're taught go beyond the pleasantries that we're not t- supposed to talk about the unpleasantness. We're supposed to just power through and suppress and repress. And so I, I think about that a lot in terms of how I want to embody truth. And also those times when I forgive myself for not leaning a hundred percent into it when I say I'm fine and I'm not fine. Right. Right. Um, because we are conditioned to do that. Or when we edit or contort ourselves or yes. our words to take care of other people, like how limiting that is, right? Not just for ourselves, but for the experience that other people should be having of our truth, it's whether so they like it or not. And it's so powerful when we do tell the truth 
because I was thinking about a meeting I had been in once where we were talking about race in a, com- in a space where I was the only person of color. And it was right after the election and people were having all sorts of uncomfortable conversations. And I said some things that made people really prickly because they were uncomfortable with me kind of speaking my truth. And one person said, okay, well, we just have to get back to business because that was really strong language and we can't, we can't talk about this. And this other person said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. Like that. And you could have cut attention in that room <laughs> with a knife. And I said, I'm not okay, but I see that he wants to continue with the business. So let's move on. And then it kind of came back to a thing where other people said, oh, well, we really need to talk about it. But it freaked people out. And just to watch the way that it's almost like when you watch animals scattering before a storm. Yeah. The way that people did that yeah. when I just said, no, I'm not okay, but we can move on since you clearly don't care. Well, it and if we people out, if we can't tolerate our own discomfort, you know, we can't tolerate anyone else's discomfort. That's so true. Right. So it's like the depth of which we can go within ourselves is probably, you know, analogous to the depth that we can go in for other people. Right. So I like love, like, I love that you stand for like speaking the guts um, and not just the good stuff, but the tough stuff. The deeper that we're willing to go within ourselves in our own ability, not just to speak the truth, but to know it, I think is analogous to what we can hold for other people. And it feels like this is a time where we need to be able to hold that for other people too, right? When I think about the other people in that room with you, um, like you deserve to be heard, even in your most like dis, like uh, uncomfortable sharp like you said you'd cut the air like a knife like that too deserves to be felt um because that's your human experience and i really believe that sickness you know that having had autoimmune diseases and things like that comes from repression um you know that there's all these biological reasons but for me i i realize that there's a physiological experience that i have when i can't speak right. my truth and so I have to be protective of that. And it's interesting because in my attempts to try to practice suspending my first judgment when people have those sorts of reactions, I've learned that sometimes when people have time to reflect, they will react differently. So the lesson that you were talking about as well, which is so great is, oh, that person really wasn't necessarily trying to shut me down. It was about shutting down the discomfort they had with the fact that maybe they wouldn't be able to speak their truth or that they didn't want to deal with having to get into the intimacy of that conversation. Right. And that person happened to be a cisgendered male. So I was thinking, oh, he probably doesn't even want to talk about what he sees as feelings or these sorts of things because it's going to uh, dismantle what he has learned about how he has to perform masculinity. And it was just really interesting because we later had a conversation when I cooled off and he brought up again, oh, you sometimes have a really strong way of saying things. Now I know why people say what they say about you. He kind of said it in that way. And it was almost wagging a finger and I just listened and then he said but you know me being in the position that I'm in in society as a wealthier older white man he said I am worried about social disorder and I can just tell that you're eating Mm. it up and it makes me uncomfortable because social disorder means that people are coming for me and so it was interesting Mm -hmm. that this moment that I see as people getting a more even distribution of resources and speaking truth and unleashing burden that's been weighing them down, he sees as a potential onslaught of 
harm or things being taken away mm. that can never be replenished. And that was really interesting that I had a level of compassion for thinking, okay, that's, that's why a fear response would happen if somebody saw the world in that way. Well, and that feels so also important to the um, to the practice of of speaking truth and being in relationship is like, how do we hold equal parts, you know, unapologetically speaking truth, no matter how it impacts other people? And of course, like we want to be responsible for that too. Um, but also having compassion for the way in which it lands, yes. right? Like how do we find that dance between like, I have to get this truth out of my system or it will become sickness and disease and... Um, how do I hold the experience of the other in relationship, right? In authentic relationship. It's true. And and I think about that relationship because this is a person who has had my back many times and that I've developed a relationship with, but is someone I would have never imagined that over the years we would have built a strong relationship that, or that I would also be someone who is actually able to communicate to this person in a way where even though they disagree, they like the logic with which I think. And so that's taught me just a lot about never assuming who our friends might be because they don't always come in the packages that you might expect. That's right. So, so let's talk more about relationship and, and I, I, I've heard you speak many times about being a feminist. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny when I think, um, I identify as a feminist, but when I, when people ask me about feminism, I often think of you because oh, you've been you. so articulate um, and um, unwavering in, in, in your standing in your full feminism. Um, and, and the question I have is really around like this idea of intersectional feminism, which I know you've talked about a mm -hmm. lot, but specifically across racial lines between um, white women and black women. And I say that knowing full well that white women have often fucked shit up <laughs> and continue to do it because that's how we are conditioned. And I say this as a white woman, obviously, who's, you know, cisgender and, and privileged beyond beyond. Um, and historically, right, white women have upheld, actively upheld um, systems of white supremacy and oppression, right, and have played a real role in getting us to where we are today. But I'm curious about like what, what it looks like, what feminism looks like across racial lines, what it looks like to be in authentic and healthy relationship, um, black women and, and white women, as we hold up this vision, this bigger vision um, that takes care of everyone. I think it's so important for there to be a real understanding that intersectionality doesn't mean that someone has to sacrifice one or the other cause or identity mm. uh, to be able to be in solidarity with another. And I think that when I come up against a lot of dissonance with white women who sort of say, you have to choose, or you have to say that being a woman causes you more suffering in society, or you are choosing to put race before gender because you are somehow affected by black patriarchy, or all the different sorts of tropes that we've heard about. Right. It often comes from a place of fear that somehow their notion of feminism and their understanding of what equality means is being threatened by my demand for my full humanity to be seen, which includes my racial background, which includes my... Right immigration status or includes my ability and or disability and all of those things that, that affect how I live because of systemic realities. So what I often like to talk to white women about who are struggling with these issues is to say, 
What does it look like when you've been conditioned to center yourself in a narrative, which would then make you think that when someone is attacking a system or a series of behaviors that are upholding a harmful system, that they are attacking you? And that has been a way that I've successfully achieved getting people to reflect on sometimes those fear-based responses or responses that are based in the need to dominate or to control the direction of an agenda to understand, oh, wait, maybe I am enforcing a habit or practice of white supremacy because I've been conditioned to do that. And maybe someone's naming that and it doesn't mean they're saying I'm a bad person or that I'm not worthy or that I'm not valid, but they're saying that systems have led me to be conditioned in this way. And right now I am upholding those systems. And so I do like to reflect that back by talking about the systems and the behaviors and also clearly expressing to people that it's not about your personhood, but the fact that you're making it about your personhood is something you should interrogate and to understand why that is. And I think that I also have made those comparisons about when men do that to help people understand why. Because as soon as I explain to them an example of a man doing that, then they suddenly understand. (laughs) But it's different because they can't see themselves as perpetrators when they see themselves as victims. Oh, that's such a good point. Well, and I think also about how um, I've come to understand liberation as intrinsically tied Mm -hmm. to dismantling racism. Like my liberation is tied to your liberation. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, like I can't be a feminist and not, um, fight, right, um, to dismantle white supremacy. Um, and I can't be um, a feminist and not fight transphobia and transaggression, right? Like, so, but but I, it took me, like, I had to get to a place where I understood the mutuality in, in all of our, um, in all of our places, regardless of our location, um, as a way to, like, understand like my place in the movement and how to like best show up in relationship. And I think that's so important because I think a lot of times when people are threatened by these sort of intersectional discourses or that not being in the center of them, that they feel that they will be left behind. Mm -hmm. And what I explain is kind of my own realization about the experiences of trans people that when the most marginalized trans woman of color is free, I'll be free. Because if we had the systems and institutions and culture set up that would support that person who is experiencing in this culture so many attacks to their personhood, then they will be liberated and they will be covered and I will be liberated and I will be covered. So for example, when I received a hate mail from someone who wanted to be taken off of our subscription list recently because of some appeals we did about supporting immigrant writers and why immigration is a feminist issue, who said, this has nothing to do with feminism. You are being stupid. And I thought, wow, this is really problematic. You are being racist. But one of the things that I really thought about and pondered was, wow, this person doesn't really realize that when undocumented immigrants in this country have access to all of the social systems, all of the cultural support and all of the privilege and power that she enjoys, then she will be more free. Because with those systems are set up, that means that everybody's covered. So it was just really interesting for me to think about that in terms of the scarcity mentality, that if we 
think about resources as being finite, if we think about domination over versus a power to collaborate or to build with other people, we really are creating a more toxic and harmful world for other people, but we're also hurting and damaging ourselves. And so I think about that and I say, when trans-Syrian refugees in this country are free, then I'm closer to freedom. That's right. And when people who are disabled in this country are closer to freedom, I'm closer to freedom. And it's something that's harder for people to understand sometimes because they see their own struggles and they don't understand the interconnectivity. And one example I just wanted to share, because we talked about the trashy TV, (laughs) is uh, Cody Brown, who's the patriarch on the Sister Wives television show. He was really not happy with the fact that some of his wives went with his newly out queer daughter to the Women's March. And he said, people are going to think it's political and why are you going? Women have their rights. Blacks have their rights is what he said. You know, he said all these things, but we don't have our rights. Why aren't our kids fighting for polygamists to have our rights? Everyone else has their rights and we don't. And we don't have the right to build our own families. And I just kept thinking, wow, I really wish I could teach you about a one-on-one on building coalition, my brother, yeah. because <laughs> I sympathize with your issue. As long as consenting adults want to form a family together and live in a poly situation, I'm down for it. I would come and march in your march. I mean, I think you're patriarchal for other reasons, but <laughs> if these women consent to, want to wanting to be married with you and they want to also share the caretaking labor, I'm all power to you. But the fact that you are very erroneously, one, claiming that women have all of our rights when we're not even constitutionally protected because there's no ERA or that brown people in this country don't experience discrimination anymore just because there are some rights on the books but not others. You're really only seeking your own liberty from a very individualist standpoint, which makes me less inclined to want to build with you because you're not really trying to create a situation or scenario where all of us are free. You just want your freedoms. And I think that that's really a part of the problem that it hurt me to see that the women around him, at least in the edit that I saw of the show, didn't challenge him on that. Yeah. Because I think that there could be some real learning that he seemed in despair when some of his children didn't want to march. And I know and understand that despair. I wish he would just have that same sort of empathy for us. Yeah. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us. Not the kind that requires documents and papers, but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another, and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another. By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month 
or $5 or $10 and so on. And think of it this way. For the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. So these values, and it's almost like worldview, right, of like interdependence and intersectionality are really central to the Women's March, Um, which, you know, when I think about what's happening in our country, people really fighting for their rights and no one else's. And then there are people who are fighting for all of our rights, right? The Women's March has really been a beacon of articulating that vision. So you just wrote um, a big portion of Together We Rise, the story of the Women's March. And the first passage that you wrote reads, The story of the Women's March is a story of legacy and learning. One reason to bear witness to preserve its history, as I have in my interviews with 30 people central to its creation and through the voices of others who attended and observed all over the world, is that lessons in this document can help us continue to show up to work for a better future. And so what is that legacy and learning that you discovered in that process? Wow, there were so many gems that came out of that process for me as an organizer, as a feminist, as a writer. I had worked on the 2004 March for Women's Lives, and at that point it had been the largest mobilization on Washington for women and reproductive justice, et cetera. So you had history even before this. And I had history before it, and they completely just – changed what my vision of what possibility and vision was. And we had had over a year to plan and they had 10 weeks, nine weeks. And I mean, it's just, it blew my mind. So they really expanded my scope and vision of what feminism looks like, what movement building looks like, what coalition looks like, what it means to have faith. I think about the Martin Luther King quote about taking that step when you can't see the staircase. They had to do that. In the beginning, people were saying- There was no staircase. There was no staircase. (laughs) Where is your money? Where is your structure? Where are your backers? You know, there were just problems, problems, problems. And they said, we see this. This has to happen. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And there were just so many things. I learned that Bob Bland could bring a life into this world during the planning process and be an active labor having a meeting with Tamika Mallory <laughs> before That's feminism this by is the way. feminism for you <laughs> and be able to make this happen yeah. and then go right back to it and this is what women can do yeah. when they work together. I learned that people who had not been on the same page about the election, some of them Bernie supporters, some of them Hillary yeah. supporters, could come together and create this march and put those issues aside. Well, and people like to talk about like all of the drama and the controversy over the coming together of the Women's March, but we never really talk about the resilience, all yes. that you're naming, right? That we we can have conflict and we can um, disagree and there can be messiness because of course, like something is being birthed, right? It's always messy. And there was and beauty. Yet, yeah. I mean, that it's it was messy, but beauty too, yeah. because of the love that they have for each other, that they were really a family. And even where I saw spaces that could have been like, oh, sibling rivalry or, you know, different things of humans being human dissonance, that there's still this respect 
that people had who you knew, okay, maybe these people aren't all best friends now, but they are bonded and they see a vision and they're working together toward it. And and then some of them are best friends now and some of them are family now. And, and that one experience led to the broader movement being built. And I think that's really beautiful. There were just, there were so many things I learned. And I think from a feminist perspective, as someone who had been in this space for a long time, seeing people who hadn't necessarily had feminism at the top of their talking points all the time, being the leaders of this, was something that I embraced because that is one of the reasons why we were able to get so many diverse people to show up. And it was very intersectional. And also there was sort of a lack of jadedness that was there about certain things that I think if it had been me that I'd think, oh, well, this is what people are going to say if we put this in the mission statement and this is who we're going to have to talk to about this to get that, that I felt like they're having people come forth with a different sort of perspective was fresh and was a great jolt of energy to the movement. And although imperfect, like any movement, really valuable and important. And so it was a deep honor to witness that and experience that. And they've made me think about my feminism differently, which has been cool, a cool side effect. You know, we're, we're often exploring in this podcast what it looks like to show up for one another. And I feel like they've been asking that question, right, yes. for the last, you know, 14 months. Um, and that's, I think, not just like the what do we do, but it's like the deep democracy mm. work. Like, how do we show up for each other? Why do we show up for each other? When people ask you, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, like, what can I do? Mm. <laughs> what is the first thing that, that you tell people? Like, is there a go-to in your theory of change? that you really encourage for people? I think it's really interesting because I feel that we're in a moment right now where showing up counts and it always has mattered. But I think it's something that we can do and we can do it in so many different ways. So showing up means showing up at the rally. We need bodies. We need numbers. That's we right. need people. We need feet on the street. We need feet on the street, boots on the ground. Yeah. We need people who are showing I am here. We need to be able to say in the picture that we had more people than were standing at that inauguration. That's right. <laughs> because other people might say it's fake news. We more than ever now in this so-called post-truth world need to show up. We need to show up for each other and check on each other and create mm. a culture of care in our movements and to say, how are you doing? I saw that you seem to be having a tough week or I saw you posted something about a loss on Facebook and what can I do to help? How can I help care for you? I think we need to show up and put our money where our talk is. Yeah. If we have those resources and we can invest in movements and show up as donors, even if you only have $5 to give that you can spare to your favorite nonprofit or to your favorite legal defense fund for people who are able to show up on the streets, that is exponentially important. And I think about research that I've done around earlier movements like the anti-lynching movements, and they were doing that. People were showing up by creating plays, showing up by mm -hmm. selling buttons, showing up by creating movies and getting them broadcast as public service announcements then. And we have even more technology now that we can do the same thing and to go to marches and to create culture. If you're an artist, use your art as your megaphone. And your books. Yes, and your books. You know, I mean, one of the things I love about being at Feminist Press is that books have the power to create revolutions. 
and especially your books for the record. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I feel I feel every day I come in and I feel hugged by the books, the shelves around us and going into our book room. If I'm having a day that's hard, I'll just think, oh, these books exist. And there's a reason people tried to bar my ancestors from reading books because they knew that books are powerful. There's a reason why the fascist governments in Europe were burning books in World War II, that books are that powerful. There's a reason why there were people trying to burn copies of Teen Vogue with because they didn't want teens to get access That's to right. comprehensive sexual education yeah. just a couple of months ago. Deeply political acts. Yes, very deeply. And so I think, you know, we show up with our strengths. I always say to people, you have something that you were given in this world, a gift, be it a talent, access to resources, powerful voice. What can you do to use that gift or series of gifts to make change? And so for me, it's power of communication. I can write, I can speak, and I can sometimes move hearts and minds. So that's what sometimes. I do. <laughs> and sometimes I, I will that. passionately try <laughs> and I will fail, but I still really mean it earnestly. And, you know, I think that comes from a having a very deeply religious family and missionary evangelical tradition, right? I tell people all the time that that is one of the reasons that I'm a feminist, that that tradition taught me how to be okay with spreading the good word and having people shut the door in my face and moving on wow. to the next, you know, that I really believe in redemption and that people's hearts and minds can change. And so that is an asset for me as someone who's an activist publisher and as a writer, because I think, oh, I, I actually believe that people can change. I think if I didn't believe that this work had the ability to shift perspectives, then Why I'd would be we wasting do my time? Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I feel like what you're naming that that feels interesting to me is um, that a lot of these things are they're not just authentic; they're they're easily accessible. Like what you're describing are like things people can do every day that don't take a lot of time. And and sometimes I think the reason people don't show up is because they think it's too hard or it's going to be too big a lift. Or but you're like, no, showing up is like every day. It's authentic. It's what we do best. It's how, you know, it's how we, it's our lifestyle. It's how we engage. Yes. And it, and when you know you showed up, I mean, I put that in the book too, and Together We Rise, that I want to tell my future children that I was there. I want to say I was not complicit. And I put that there because I was thinking about Bob and her child, Chloe, who was the March baby, and how Bob will be able to say, mommy loved you this much that she did this for you mm. to have a better world because amazing. I have that. My parents were civil rights activists and my mom was jailed over 20 times and just for fighting for the right to be free, just for wanting to eat at the same lunch counters as everyone else and to not have to attend segregated school like she did. And they fought for that. And I've grown up my whole life knowing, wow, mommy loved me so much <laughs> that she sacrificed to, to create this new vision for the future for me, even when other people were maligning her, even when people made it hard for her to do this or there was backlash. And I think about that a lot in terms of the showing up piece and why I do it and when we get yelled at or when we get hate mail or when all the things happen that can happen, still thinking that's not as important as legacy. Mm -hmm. That's not as important as what we will leave behind for the next mm -hmm. generation. And that always inspires me to show up even when it's cold out and I really don't want to go to the rally or it's snowing or, uh, you know, the, in the Together We Rise book, we talked about people freaking out over the permit 
That's right. I remember that story. <laughs> and it was so interesting because Linda Sarsour has this great part in the book where she said, did anyone ask Martin Luther King where his permit was? <laughs> <laughs> Doubt it. Doubt it. Yeah. Exactly. And what is it about women congregating in a place where people have to make it a public safety issue to silence our voices? Mm. So I think that the showing up part is really important and showing up for ourselves. Every time I go to these things, I also think I'm showing up for me. Yeah, I am showing up to say I have righteous indignation and deserve to be heard. And I also believe in voting that as an example of that showing up, I'm showing up for the people who can't vote, the people yeah. who don't have access to vote because they're undocumented or because of their legal status or because or they're too things. young because they're too young the future oh my gosh if, if only all the kids who are doing the walkouts right now could vote we're working on it exactly <laughs> yes I, I mean i trust them to legislate more than some of the people That's who right. are in elected office like right. right now so I'm just, I think the showing up is really important and to show up for ourselves. And that's something we can do in this life. And and what about the Solange syllabus? Like, <laughs> when do we pull out the Solange syllabus? Oh, well, I think there's a Solange syllabus moment for everything, I I, as I love her. But yeah, I think what I love about Solange is that when I did interview her for Bust magazine, she said that she was not someone who had been able because of the trajectory of her career to go to college and learn about theory and some of these things in the way that some of us had. So mm. she said that she looked to people like myself and Salome Shatillet and Brittany Cooper and people like that to hear from us online, that what we were writing about as online black feminist to inform her theory. And so we did the going to grad school and all these other things to then popularize these kinds of ideas so that other people who might not have been able to do that, but were taking up the space in a different, equally important and valid way, different forms of knowledge and creativity to share it in her way. And so I love that because also what she was also saying is that we have some ownership in the Solange syllabus, which I thought was so beautiful and interdependent and collectivist and the beauty, the beautiful visionariness of black feminist pragmatism that she's also giving us a piece of the connectivity and saying, yes, you influenced me. And so that to me was really beautiful and what the syllabus is about and the fact that she was crowdsourcing it. So cool. All of it. And I love that. I mean, how did that feel that she was like looking to you? Were you like, oh, Oh, so I was waiting for the pub date of it, thinking, oh, you know, this is, I'm not going to be able to say anything about this for a while. And then Solange dropped it on Twitter. And next thing I know, I'm getting texts from my high school playmates and, or sorry, my um, preschool playgroup mates who so I, cool. you know, knew when I was three years old saying, girl, did you know Solange just tweeted about you? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And thinking, what? Oh, and so she dropped it, you know, she scooped it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't, I die. But meeting her, I mean, it was very similar to the conversation we're having right now. Two hearts that just really connected. We were both tearing up. We had so much synergy and just a vision mm -hmm. for a better future for our people and our community, for each other. And what she really showed me was, wow, you know, a person can ascend to some pretty powerful places in this world. And the way that they use and distribute that power and access is really the lesson and grace and, and in spirit and in power. And I really got that from her that she, she even said, I remember when we sat down and I said, oh, you know, I love this restaurant. Where are we at? And she said, oh, you know, they have a lot of really wonderful people from 
Mexico who work here, and I really like that they have people of color laborers who are doing this work who are treated really well at this establishment. And the fact that she was having that level of analysis in terms of who she was thinking about supporting in terms of being at their business and knowing that that was going to elevate the profile of it. You were like, I love you. It was just amazing. (laughs) I love her that she is walking her full Mm. talk, and I have the utmost respect for Solange Knowles. And then another person that you interviewed for Bust was Auntie Maxine. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I love Auntie Max. And she said in in your interview with her, first of all, women should try very hard to get in touch with themselves. Who am I? What do I really like? What would I like to do? Who are the people I respect and look up to? And what qualities do they have that I can internalize? Build confidence, get in touch with yourself, get grounded, examine yourself, and be who you want to be. What does that look like for you? Oh my goodness. So I died during this interview (laughs) in every good way because Auntie Max is amazing. I felt like if she had the time, which I know she's reclaiming, (laughs) I would have been like, be my life coach. I will pay whatever it takes because this woman knows what she wants, how to get it, and has an unparalleled confidence, an unparalleled confidence to very few people that I've seen in the world. She is brilliant and dropped so many gems. And so when she said that to me, I thought, wow, I really aspire to keep living my life in a way where I can be more fearless about leaning into my purpose, trusting my instincts and understanding that I'm powerful, understanding my power, and knowing how to channel it. I think my biggest weakness is one, acknowledging the power and then figuring out how to channel it as Mm, if, and Megan Watterson talks about that a little bit about, you know, the Hogwarts, where's the Hogwarts for us spiritual warrior women, you know? And I think about, yeah, sometimes, you know, my Quidditch stick, I I discharge (laughs) it the wrong way and then all hell breaks loose, right? But I just, I know I I have, a barrier to understanding and knowing my own power. And my partner is a really amazing person. He always says that sometimes. He'll say, you do not understand your power, woman. Yeah. He's like, it scares me sometimes. But you like, you just need to understand your power. And sometimes I make very awkward mistakes because of it. And so right now, what because I'm Because you're navigating do, it. I'm navigating it. Or I repress it because we're, I'm taught I'm supposed to shrink. I'm taught I'm supposed to shrink. Yeah. Or people have reactions to me being a woman who kind of holds and knows her power. And then I then repress it. And then I can not be a great person to be around. I was really aggressive with one of his friends recently who has a different political belief than I do. And I still hold fast to the things that I said. But the way that I said them mm. was completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I was aggressive, domineering and made this person cry who's a grown man who's definitely, I think, maybe almost a couple feet taller than I am. And he was really hurt. And he said, you know, that was one of the most hurtful things anyone's ever said to me. And I thought, wow, okay, that was me not knowing my power Mm -hmm. because I was so just overcome with righteous indignation Mm -hmm. that I just was like, oh, hell no, (laughs) when he started talking. And a year of me not really speaking truth to him about how I was experiencing the things he was Mm -hmm. saying and the energy and everything, me repressing that led me to practically levitate, as one of my friends said who was in the room. She's like, I actually feared for what was going to go down. And so I I made him leave the house because I was just like, I cannot. 
And so for me, it really helped me realize, okay, yes, you know, understand your power because that was not my best self. Yeah. Well, and I think about, um, I relate by the way, (laughs) I have never been called domineering (laughs) or a bossy or, (laughs) um, no, I, I relate. And I, and I think about, um, what we need to do to take care of ourselves, to take care of our truth. We, um, as people like us maybe, or we as women, right? Like what is the way in which we need to, um, cultivate and channel that power, Mm. um, as we start to like rise up together. And I'm just curious as to like, what do you do to take care of yourself? Right. And what are you doing to like build community around that? Thank you so much for asking. So I actually got back into therapy, which I hadn't done for years, even though I'd been going through a lot of things, you know, just people in my family haven't gotten sick and other things, um, just a lot of transitions. I hadn't done it. And I thought, wow, you need to invest in therapy because if you had been able to manage your experience of this person and the things that they were saying you wouldn't have expended powerful energy that you could have put in the surface of your vision in the world. And that was really an important thing for me. And then I did a breath work session with a friend, um, Kathleen Booker, the Jedi of Calm, who um, <laughs> did breath work with me. And really during the breath work, because she does a lot of work, and I know in this space I can talk about it, she did a lot, she does a lot of work of, you know, connecting with your ancestors and the people who kind of are present yes. when you're doing these meditations. And she said, oh, you're someone every time who has a lot of folks in the room. You got a lot of ancestors who come with you. And they all are saying it does not have to be that hard. Mm. And it was really, it just kind of overcame me because that's something I just have felt that I have been conditioned to believe, oh, it has to be hard. And so I always got to come like 150%. Yeah. You like, you need to know my force, right? Um, crystal sword is always how the way that I say it, that I'm like charging with my crystal sword, right? And sometimes... I don't need that. I think sometimes I remember an ex of mine when we broke up and finally got to talk. Cause of course, you know, knowing now my personality profile in the moment, I was like, Oh, I cannot believe you like out of my house. <laughs> and, um, when this happened, we talked later and he was talking about the power. And I, you know, I think I said some things that were just about like to let him know like that you will not, you will not overcome me. You will not define me, you know, kind of thing. And he said, Oh, I don't think you understand the power that you can hold and the power you can have over other people. He said, you know, you really needed to make clear to me that I was not going to penetrate mm. your being. And I knew that within five minutes of knowing you. Wow. <laughs> but there was something deep inside my inner eighth grader, whatever insecurities and the systemic inequalities and all those things that felt like I needed him to know. Because yeah. I think his thing was, he said, oh, I, you didn't cry. And, you know, this was really hard. And the fact that you didn't cry. And I said, yeah, I worked with every fiber of my being to let you know that I was irrepressibly impenetrable. <laughs> but of course I went home and fell apart. Yeah. And so I think that, that is the thing that I am really exploring right now around how we can hold all of those facets of ourselves and be proud of them. That what is it about me having fears about the vulnerability and what might happen if people were to see it, me mm-hmm. fall apart mm-hmm. versus me being like, oh, you harmed me? It's my crystal sword. <laughs> well, and this is what I love that's rising up around sisterhood, right? Like yes. that we come together and we can be that like we can reveal those parts of ourselves together 
um, in ritual, in practice, in storytelling, in hysterical laughter, <laughs> in drinking wine, and wine, whatever yeah. you know, um, gluten free pizza. Yes. But like, but that there's there is something I feel like that um, is that I get to turn to in like sisterhood and in small circles of women who are just coming together and putting it all on the table for one another so that like we we don't have to do this alone it's sort of like the real-time analogy of your um trashy tv yes i love that <laughs> like, i love it we're, we're we're coming full circle in the conversation but like we're not alone and when we come together and we can feel belonging in this really human like in between trying to figure out how to be our full selves way of being in the world then you know maybe we can maybe we can get all the way together I totally agree. I mean, I that's where I get so much of my energy. And I have groups of women who I've grown up with at different times of my life who I just text with sometimes. We're just rapidly texting all the time about our experiences. And, you know, some people it's dating. Some of us it's family things. Some of us it's work things. And I can constantly kind of tap into that energy no matter where I am. And I and I realized, oh, it's I need to know I'm not alone and that they're going through these same things or they went through them. And so they're now they're helping me nurture me and are helping me think about, oh, if this happened to to her, the experience I'm having now, what would I tell her? You know? And yeah. and I think that those relationships are are really important. And that's why I am really grateful that my mom had always imparted upon me to remember that as I started dating or having relationships, that my relationships with other women were things that I needed to really cultivate even more um, because those would be the people who would be with you um, throughout your life as your sisters, especially since I don't have any biological siblings. For the long haul. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Through Golden Girls, another show that I love. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I hope that like we're going to be Golden Girls together like way down it. the line and we're going to like remember... Well, that podcast we did. Oh, well, we're going to have our own <laughs> we'll have like our own. feminist retirement home. I, that's something I would love to get funded. I've always been like, when are we going to have a feminist retirement home? You can teach the yoga. <laughs> I love it. I, you, can, you can do a journaling class. I would love it. <laughs> yes. Well, I have had such a blast talking to you. And like I said, like um, every time we get to hang out, it's like we're having this conversation. It's just so real and grounded and gritty and necessary. And I'm just so grateful that not just we have you in the movement, that I get to have you in my life. Oh, right back at you, love. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thrilled about the work you're doing. And you have helped me feel like I can tap back into uh, yoga and movement because embodiment is something that it's a struggle for me sometimes. And I started leaving some of the classes feeling like I couldn't connect for all the reasons that I know that you work to dismantle. Yeah. But you're one of the people who's inspired me to start going back to yoga and being in my body and I'm really grateful for that. Too. We need each other. We do. <laughs> we are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the US. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org.
While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to support feminist publishing and storytelling. Check out Feminist Press Books or donate to help them amplify feminist perspectives. Go to feministpress.org and follow Jamia's journey at Jamia W on Twitter. Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank all of you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling all of your friends to check us out. 